There's a, a verse, it's found uh, in the book of Numbers. It's an Old Testament verse. Uh, you were probably taught it, if you grew up in a house like mine, you were taught it growing up. Uh, because in my house, you know, we didn't grow up in, in, a, in a real Christian home. I think we would have said we were Christians, but it was, you know, Christmas and Easter. Um, it was very important for us, but not much more than that. But we didn't grow up in a home where we were doing like... Um, uh, Bible verse trivia. Steve talked about that last week. I didn't grow up in a house like that. So there wasn't a lot of scripture getting tossed around in my house. Um, but there was this one verse. It was taught to us mostly, and, and many of you know it, even if you grew up in a home like mine, uh, by our moms. It's wisdom, but it's wisdom mixed with just a little bit of guilt uh, and a whole lot of fear. Moms are good at that. Um, dads aren't too bad at it either. And for most of my life, I didn't even know it really was a Bible verse. I just thought it was like a threat that my mom would administer on special occasions. Maybe you've heard it as you left for the prom in high school. Or maybe you heard it when, when you got moved into college. You know, a lot of us are moving our kids back to college this week and you got dropped off. Perhaps it was the final exchange prior to your parents going away for the, the weekend. You remember the first time your parents went away for the weekend and you were like 16 or 17 and got left alone in the house, right? There's something powerful and spooky about this verse. And, and there's something that's strange about its propensity for turning out to be true. Uh, the verse I'm speaking of, it was spoken by Moses in the Old Testament. It's this. It, it, but if you fail to do this, Moses says, you'll be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin, anybody? Your sin will find you out. Right? We love to throw that one on. Your sin will find you out. As I was thinking about this in my own life, you know where this seems to make its way um, you know, into our lives, especially in those high school years, most importantly, are in those moments when somebody's mom and dad did go away for the weekend, and they decided they were going to have a party. I remember my buddy Mike Weissman. Good kid. He got a 1600 on his SATs. Really smart. Um, his parents went away for the weekend, and Mike decided he was going to throw a little party. And so uh, I was one of his friends, and I was invited over. Pre-internet days, mind you, the word got out. And uh, Mike's parents were away, and the next thing you know, there were hundreds of kids in Mike Weissman's house. And I'll never forget the moment when they wheeled the keg in, and they threw it into Mike's avocado green ceramic sink, um, and it cracked in half. And I thought to myself, you know, my mother said something like this was going to happen if, uh, and a uh, bunch of us slept over Mike's house that day in the late 80s, and I'll never forget when his parents showed up early on Sunday morning, and uh, there was just kids everywhere, and a broken avocado sink, and Mike's sins found him out. My brother, back in high school, was a pretty big party guy himself. He could throw his fair share of parties. And uh, my mom wasn't going away, but she was just going to be out for the night. So uh, there was the word got out there was going to be a big party in the woods by our house. And so, uh, you know, everybody in town went to the party in the woods by our house. And I don't remember exactly what happened. Somebody fell, somebody tripped, somebody got hit. I don't remember what it was. But somebody wound up profusely bleeding and made their way into my house. And uh, the police, you know, there was blood all, all over, and the police got called, and here comes home, my mother home with three police cars in her driveway and uh, blood all over her kitchen. And I looked at her and I said, Mom, I remember you told me something like this might happen. Um, I should have really paid more attention to that. It's often true, right? 
But it's really a misquoted verse. Moses was speaking about a specific sin, not general sin. Um, it wasn't meant to be a warning echoed across the ages by parents and, uh, to keep their kids in line. Although that said, I don't mind using it myself now and then. The truth, though, is if you, li if you live long enough, there's something you start to realize about that verse. That lots of our sins, uh, my sin, your sin, his sin, her sin, their sin, lots of sins remain clouded in darkness and secrecy. Yes, some of our sins find us out, but most of us have experienced the fact that not all of them do, right? Certainly, if you're a human being, there are sins, there are stories, there are shortcomings in each of our lives that if we had it our way, we would keep them revealed. Youthful indiscretions, as our presidential candidates now refer to them, right? Or a flat-out mistake, Sins that thankfully all of us have at one point in our lives that have yet to be found out, and we like to keep it that way. I mean, maybe it was a bad night, right? Maybe it, was a, maybe it was a bad week. I mean, for some of us, maybe it was like a bad decade. You know, the 80s were a rough decade. I have some friends who wasted away a lot of time, and there was a lot of sin in there, and they'd prefer that it not come out. Nothing has provided more sin anonymity uh, for souls than the advent of the internet. You can go anywhere, you can see anything, you can say anything with great impunity and great anonymity online because it's private. It's secret. Nobody knows. Or at least until this week, it seems. Because uh, this week we've had the greatest internet hack since Edward Snowden. I mean, if you think revealing CIA secrets was damaging, this hack has left a pile of carnage a thousand feet high. The leak of which I speak, I'm a poet and I did not know it, the leak of which I speak is the release of the Ashley Madison database. Who knows this story? Raise your hand if you are aware of this story. Have you been away from the news, and maybe you'd have to be really far away to have missed this. Ashley Madison, um, Ashley Madison was an online site for cheaters, for people in committed relationships, for essentially married people, to go and register to have extramarital affairs. It, it was, as evidenced by its logo, it was supposed to be kept quiet. I mean, look, she's saying, shh. No one will know. I mean, heck, it's on the internet. How could anybody really find out? <laughs> now, as most of you know, if you've been watching the news at all, you see how many email addresses were on there? 33 million email addresses. Let me give you, so if you're a numbers guy, I like, I like to put things in perspective, right? That's a lot of, that's a lot of emails. In fact, for the sake of perspective then, anybody know how many married couples there are in the United States? 60 million. Don't look at your neighbor the way you're looking over at your neighbor. And I want to be careful here. I'm sure the database is filled with double counts. I'm sure it's, uh, I had a friend one time when we were in the management training program at First Fidelity Bank. Um, this was pre-internet, but uh, you know how they would send around magazine cards and you could sign up for magazines? My friend would sign me up for every high school cheerleading magazine there was <laughs> and have it delivered to my cube. <laughs> 
And so every week, there'd be like four high school cheerleader magazines rolling into my cube at my office. So that's a true story and an embarrassing one. That I won't go on. So I know that some of that is true, but any way you want to count it, there's a lot of names on that list. And it's, at one point, maybe it's a little bit funny. We can laugh at it, but it really isn't funny. Um, and for a lot of families this morning, the, the sin and the revelation of the sin, the, the finding out here is not funny at all. It's not funny. And certainly, with a data breach and a database this big, the carnage is not going to be limited to any one area. In fact, I read this week, if you want to understand the breadth of this, there were, in the United States of America, only three zip codes that were not on that database. In the entire country. Farmers, financiers, bankers, businessmen, and because... They're not above failing. Pastors and priests, all of their sins, doing just what my mom said would happen, finding them out. In fact, today, in many churches across America, this is going to be National Awkward Sunday. Ed Stetzer, he does a lot of church research. He's been writing blogs on this all week. They're fascinating. If you want to look them up online, he did a really good job with this, I think. He wrote... Uh, he wrote um, he writes a, a, a lot, does a lot of uh, media research, or excuse me, Christian research. And uh, the tagline, the one tagline that the secular media outlets have picked up this week is this. He said, and this is a guy that does extensive stuff on, on Christianity across the world. Based on my conversations with leaders from several denominations in the U.S. and Canada, I estimate that at least 400 church leaders will be resigning Sunday. It's not funny. Maybe you know Josh Duggar uh, of 19 kids and counting. I don't know when we're ever going to learn as Christian people to stop holding up anybody but Jesus Christ. Stop holding up anybody but Jesus Christ. Josh Duggar, he was the executive director of the Family Research Council. His name showed up. I'm only sharing his because that's been all over the news. There are others. You can look them up. And so what do we do? Here. What's our reaction to this is folks who would just like to walk and talk and engage humanity as Jesus would. What's our reaction to this just simply as human beings? By the amount of pain and disgrace and dishonor and shame that's just been let loose into the world. I've noticed two common takeaways on this over the week. Um, maybe you have too. The first is what you would think. It's, it's shame. There's nothing more embarrassing than being outed, right? Than being caught in the act. If you're a human being, there's been times when you've gone to bed and you've thought to yourself, man, I hope nobody finds out about this. In fact, there were already two suicides about this this week. It's not funny. There's shame and embarrassment and disgrace for those on the list. Now, the second most common reaction, at least as it appears to me, seems to be, a bit of joy. Almost a chorus of, you know what, I'm glad they got caught. They deserve it. Almost like a righteous reveling, you know, uh, if you will. There's something, what is it about us that loves this stuff? That loves to see somebody get caught. 
You know, file this headline under the, as, much things, as much as things change, they, they stay the same. The whole story is remarkably similar to a conversation Jesus had. I think it's one worth checking out today in light of the whole situation and as we are in this series of how Jesus dealt with real-life stuff on the streets of Jerusalem. So by way of background, I want you to enter the story with me because in a sense now we've just entered it. The story is the same. In John chapter 7, if you read it, you would read that it was the, it was, what was going on at this time where Jesus is doing this teaching is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of seven major feasts on the Hebrew calendar. It was the last feast of the year. It was the last of the fall feasts. Not, not a much different time than maybe now. It was the feast before the winter. And what their prayer was, what the point of the gathering was, was to pray that rains would come and water the crops so that they'd grow in the spring and you'd have a harvest and something to celebrate then and give thanks in the spring feasts. Thousands of pilgrims would pour into Jerusalem in the first century for eight days of feasting and staying in makeshift tents. And during the eight days, there were sacrifices and singing and special rituals all oriented around, oriented around asking God, God, would you please bring the water rains so that we would have food come spring? Again, this is a classic mistake of humanity, going to God for something other than himself. Uh, I'm going to go to God to get rain. I'm not going to go to God for God. And so they would gather and they, and, and they would pray and they would do all of these things, all these sacrificial things in order to move God's hand so that they would get rain during the winter. Water as rain, water as thirst, thirst as a metaphor, it was all going on in the town and it was representative kind of like a spiritual longing for the people. And so there was lots of teaching day after day about water. The eight days all built up to the last day when the high priest would take a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine and we'd pour them together over the altar while the crowd chanted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Meaning God save us as in God please. In this instance, God please bring winter rains to save us from drought and, to, and famine. And with that in mind, you see in, in, in John chapter 7, it says this. On the last great day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice. Why is he speaking in a loud voice? Because it's the last day and the crowd would have been chanting wildly. God, we need water. Without water, we're going to die. And Jesus wants to be heard over the gathering throng. And what does he say in his, his outside voice, as my father used to say to me? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Because I have water that won't run out. And you'll never thirst again. And he uses this moment, a moment when people are focused on their very real physical need. He did it other times, right? When people, when people had followed him for food, he says, if you want food, you need to eat me. He calls them, he, call, he calls out to their spiritual thirst. And he says, I can do something about this. Okay, so now enter the story. This is what's going on in Jerusalem at the time. As one writer put it, thousands of people, they're feasting and they're drinking and they're living in make, makeshift shelters on the side of the hill in Jerusalem. It's basically kind of like a big old religious revival camp with a lot of booze and carousing going on. And, and, and what happens, think about it, when a, I mean, put yourself kind of a Woodstock frame of mind. What happens when a lot of people drink and camp together? You could wind up in the wrong tent. And John 8. As dawn appeared, he, he, as at dawn he appeared in the temple courts, 
where all the people had gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The rabbis would sit down when it was time for a formal teaching. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. They made her stand before the group. And they said, Jesus, teacher, this, this woman was caught, caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who was out without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who had begun, who had heard, began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, interesting detail, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's a small-scale, first-century Ashley Madison scandal. And it has the same characteristics as the Ashley Madison story, if you think about it. I mean, the story's about one person who's done something terrible. Likely feels horrible about it. Have you ever been caught in the act of something? Guilt and shame and public embarrassment made to stand up in front of everybody and have their sins recounted publicly before all of Jerusalem. It's a story about others who've done something just as terrible, maybe worse, but they don't feel any guilt about it at all. They're so concerned with the moral decay of society that they can't see the decay in their own souls. And then it's a story about Jesus. It's a story about a woman, a married woman. We know this because the Old Testament verses, the law they cited, the religious leaders used, referred to a married woman. Now let me show you something, because this is what the Bible said in, in Leviticus 20.20. 20. This is what they were quoting to Jesus in trying to trap him. They said, teacher, here's what the Bible says. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are be put to death. And just in case Jesus might not be familiar with that, they probably quoted Deuteronomy 22:22, which said, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge this evil from Israel. This society is going to hell in a handbasket. We got to do something about this. Now, remember, remember what we've talked about in here over the last year. These guys, these, these religious authorities, they knew their Bible. They had studied it from the time they were four or five years old. They took the law seriously. They loved the law. They took it into their heart. I mean, this is what the Bible said. Now, who is this girl that gets dragged in? I mean, given the fact that 13 and 14-year-olds were often given a wedding. She's given to be married. She's probably a young bride. No different than any other young bride. Joan and I were on the beach this week. It's a funny story. We're sitting on the beach this week on Wednesday or Thursday afternoon. All of a sudden, a guy comes down. And he starts setting up an altar. And uh, I said to the guy, is going to be a wedding here? And he goes, yeah, and here I am. Luckily, there was no photos of this, but sitting in my bathing suit and no shirt. And uh, 
I'm like in the front row. And uh, I'm thinking, I, I said, should I move? He goes, no. I'm going, well, this is awkward. Um, <laughs> I was fearing that I'd be in the wedding picture, you know, and that was good go down. And, you know, the internet, who knows? And uh, I, I didn't need to worry about that because about five minutes later, the father of the bride came up to me and he said, are you going to be here for a little bit? And I said, yeah. He goes, would you mind being the photographer? It's an absolutely true story, right? 100% true. I looked at him, you said, are you serious? He goes, yeah, here's my iPhone. Now, I can't see anything, right? I'm blind, the sun's out, I got no shirt on, and here I am, like, walking down the aisle with the bride. And it's just Joan and I, and I'm going, I can't believe nobody's around to see this. But what was cute was, as the guy was setting up, um, setting up the trellis and, and, and putting down, down the thing on the beach, all these little girls would run up to the guy and all go, is this going to be a wedding? Is it? I didn't see one little boy run up to this guy. <laughs> Not one. Right? They just kept digging holes. <laughs> which is what we tend to go on, which might be what I'm doing right now, actually. But all these little girls kept coming up to the guy. Is this a wedding? Is this a wedding? Joe and I were going on about how cute it was because they were just so fascinated by, about this. And then I heard them start to argue, I'm going to be the bride. I get to be the bride. Right? The heart of a, a little girl. And so here you have this woman who likely had this same heart, and likely got married. And her plans for marriage didn't include having an affair with some other guy. But if you live long enough, you know that this happens. You know that there was probably some dysfunction in their marriage. I don't know who's, whose fault it was. I don't know if he wasn't paying attention to her or she wasn't paying attention to him. I don't know if he worked long hours. I don't know if she spent too much time at the market. But something happened. Now, we're all grown up in here, right? And we understand that when you get married at 13, uh, when you're 30, you might meet somebody that you really like. That happens. And it happened to her. There was probably a point there where she realized that she was attracted to this guy and that she probably shouldn't stop going to the market at noon. She'd probably switch what time she goes to the well, but she didn't. And over time, they probably kept meeting and you know, maybe they started sharing some, some stories about their spouses, about how maybe you know, he doesn't really understand me the way you do. <clears throat> Maybe he started treating her with, with respect and love. And maybe he started fulfilling all those dreams that she had when she was a little girl. And, you know, she kept making bad choices. And eventually, at one point or another, like a huge percentage of us, she made a really bad choice. And she across kind of a final line of no going back. As long as this was a secret for her, and nobody knew, she could live in two worlds. I meet spouses that do this all the time. When I'm in one world, I can pretend that the other world doesn't exist. 
There's a, a, a very good song called, and the tagline in it is, is that you, is that you, or is actually the author at the end goes, is it me that you're seeing or is it just a brilliant disguise? We can, we can pretend to be in one world and the other one doesn't exist. And so she could keep herself from, from thinking about what this was doing to, to maybe her husband or, or what it might, the impact it might have on her family or, or what it might say about her faith. Can you see the Ashley Madison people? Uh, look, as long as this is in secret, as long as nobody knows, uh, it's just going to be me and I, nobody, you know, my wife will never, my husband won't know. And I'm not going to go there about what might happen if the kids find out about it. I'm just, it's just... I'm just going to keep it here, and I'm going to have, I'm going to have computer me and, and other me. But at some point, she crossed the line, and there was a full-blown affair going on. And sin leads to more sin, leads to the lie. It's never the, you know, it's, what is it? It's never the first thing. It's the cover-up. It's never the... And she'd go to temple, and in the beginning, maybe the first night, maybe the first morning after, she felt really bad about it. Maybe you've been there. Shouldn't be in church. Feeling pretty guilty about who I am and what I'm doing. But you know what happens if you keep going to church? You don't start to feel that bad anymore. Because you can have outside of church me and inside of church me. And I, I can keep going to church because as long as the secret stays intact and nobody knows, nobody sees what's happening, everything's going to be okay. Until this one moment. And this time she's with him and the doors swing open and some guys come in, likely at least two or three, and they grab her and she screams. She doesn't know what's going on. She's likely unclothed. They throw something on her. She begs for forgiveness. She begs for mercy. Her thought of her family and her kids and what this is going to mean to her and the fact that she knows the law too and she's probably going to be killed. It's all running through her mind. Oh my gosh, what she would do to be able to go back to the first decision, the first bad line she crossed, and do it all over again. It's just like at the fall in Genesis. The veil was ripped away from her eyes, and she was able to see herself. We talked about leading me to the cross. She was able to see herself for a second. The worlds collided, and she understood who she was, that she, like Adam and Eve, was now standing naked and ashamed and a victim of her thousand bad choices. And that's somebody's story in here today. For some of you, an increasing, a shocking number, you find yourself very close to So many of us are willing to, to allow God to be God in areas of our life, in our finances, in our raising our kids, and, and in our career choices, and 
all kinds of ways. But the minute God wants to get involved in our sexuality or our, our choices there, it's like, well, no, 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 I, that, that's private. That, that kind of stays over here. So here's what I would say to you this morning. If this story has resonated with you and you find yourself in the place of that woman, it's not too late. It's not too late. You can get out of this. You're going to have to bring it into the light, probably. You're probably going to have go, to go meet with somebody. You're probably going to have to come clean. But you can get out of this. Don't ruin your life. Don't hurt your kids. You can get out of this. Your God loves you and forgives you and beckons you to come. Some of you this morning legitimately have an Ashley Madison fear. Your name is on the list. I mean, there's 33 million names on the list. If there's a few hundred people here, I mean, you know. Some of you are wondering, what if my wife gets hold of my phone and reads the text I forgot to delete? Some of you are thinking, what if my boss gets a hold of my computer and reads the history I forgot to delete? You want to worship God this morning, but you're sitting there all wrapped up, and now you're going, I can't believe somehow somebody told John about this. See, there's only one good thing about the whole Ashley Madison thing. If we got it right, it was that this is getting brought out into the light, and the only chance that any of this has of getting healed is that it got brought into the light. Otherwise, it just hides in the darkness. Sin thrives, it prospers, it grows, it metastasizes in darkness. The truth is when it's exposed, when it's brought into light, it can be healed. And maybe you need to do that this morning. Maybe you are this woman. Maybe before you actually do get caught in the act, maybe you need to get together with a friend or an elder or a small group leader or a counselor. Maybe you and I should, should chat and begin a process of healing and fixing this because it's not too late. I'm so I'm so. I'm so tired of watching families get ripped up by this stuff. Now, we all have bad habits. We all have things that we do. And here's what we all know. Nothing changes it if we just leave it in the dark and don't do anything about it. So I would say this morning, if you find yourself in the place of the woman, uh, this can be fixed. Now here, you need to understand something about this Jesus, right? Let's go back to the story. Jesus is in this formal teaching time before this large fall festival. It's not a small private setting. The whole town is bustling and full of people. And before all of them, this group of self-righteous, pious men drag this poor woman before Jesus and the town and all the visitors, and they're more than happy to embarrass her in front of everybody. Their only concern is not her or her kids, or her family, or what happens to her life, or her parents. Their only concern is trying to trap Jesus to elevate their own twisted religious views. After all, they know the Bible, what the Bible says, and the Bible says she must die. Now, never mind that the Bible also says there needs to be two or three witnesses there to actually be witnesses. You can't just have one person. And, and, and maybe there were two or three witnesses there, which then in your mind makes you go, what were they doing? Like, what were, they, were they just sitting around waiting for this opportunity? Because the scripture would say, if you see someone that's about to be caught in sin, you should gently and humbly go and take them out of it, not wait for them to sin and then have an aha moment. What about the guy? Did anybody catch those two Old Testament verses? You know, there's supposed to be somebody else that's getting stoned here too. Nobody dragged him. Ladies, right? I'm digging a hole again. <laughs> Religious people have a tremendous propensity 
to pick and choose commands of the Bible they want to enforce. But none of that matters right now, not at least to this woman, uh, and none of it matters to, to these, these, these self-righteous men. Nothing about her pain or her shame, none of it matters because she's been caught. She's been outed. Her name's on the list. And now they got Jesus right where they want him, right? Because he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, what can he do? The Bible says that he, and he can't go against the law, so he's going to have to say that, that, that she'd be killed. But there's also a Roman law of the day that says that the Jews uh, weren't allowed or permitted to execute anybody. So if he says stoner, well, then he's in trouble with the Romans. Oh, they got him right where they want him. And at the heart of the story is that woman, broken embarrassed, trembling, and guilty, by the way. And all the religious leaders see is a sinner caught in the act, and a way a popular rabbi is going to be trapped and, 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 and pulled to failure. And so they stand, stone in hand. Pick up your stone, will you? Don't throw your stone. <laughs> it's a very dangerous place to be. They stand there with their stones in their hands. Have you had a stone in your hand as a religious person, you church-going people? What happens to us? Somehow it's like pride and our desire to be obedient and our disdain for sin. and It turns into a dislike or a judging of less devoted people until one day it's like our hearts turn cold and we wind up almost addicted to throwing stones at others. I mean, this is what's so dangerous about pride and moral superiority when it gets a hold of you. She knew her sin the ones with the stone had no idea of how far their heart was from God. And somehow we can wind up walking through life as like the, the, the judge and the jury with a stone in our hands. See, this is a story about cheaters and it's a story about chuckers because churches tend to, tend to be full of stone chuckers. We can have so little love for one another. Somebody's kid screws up. Well, you know, I heard that kid's... You hear about that kid? I heard he's smoking pot. Do you see the way her daughter dressed when she came to church? Did you hear about that party over at whatever their name's house? What about what he said? What about what she said? See, the church winds up becoming this place. It's not just, it's not just about our homes or our kids or our careers. I mean, heck, it could be like, well, you know, I heard uh, John doesn't like the stained glass window. Must not be a Christian. <laughs> I probably shouldn't go down these roads, but. <laughs> we love stones in the church. This is one of our most renowned stories, and we become a people that love to walk around carrying stones. And so they stand there. See, I do this. Can I just share this with you? God told me this coming here this morning. I hate when he does this, especially when I'm trying to preach. Last night, Joan and I were watching a show on... Um, I don't know. Oh, it was, we had recorded. It was uh, on Glenn Campbell. I don't know if you've seen it. Glenn Campbell has got dementia. Um, you know, Rhinestone Cowboy? I won't make you sing. Um, and uh, he, he and his wife and his children decided they would record, like, his last concert tour. And for a year and a half, they followed him around. And it was deeply disturbing to watch as he literally, and some of you are walking through this with, with people that you love. And it was very deeply disturbing to watch as he was literally losing himself in himself. And... Uh, 
At one point towards the end, his daughter got up and talked about how important God was in their family and how much scripture had been taught in their home all through their lives. And you know what Stonechucker John thought? Really, then why were you married three times? It's what happened in my heart. Thought about it this morning as I was getting ready to preach. It's the first thing that went through my mind. And you know when I was driving here this morning and God was putting on that heart, my heart? I was saying, yeah, that was really bad, God. I can't believe I'm about to get up and talk to these people about being stone chuckers. And I'm like, chief stone ch chucker? He said, yeah, you tossed one out about Frank Gifford last week too, by the way. And I did. Something happens to us. This is one of our greatest stories. And we don't see that we hold in our hands this morning stones. But oddly enough, they say to Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? And you know what he says? Nothing. I hate when Jesus does that. He gets down and he starts writing in the sand. And so they keep questioning him, you know. Hey, listen, you're the teacher. You're supposed to know what's going on. Make a decision. You know what the Bible says. What should we do? You better say the right thing. You better not mess it up. You better stick up for the Bible. And by the way, I'm not mocking sticking up for the Bible, okay? But I am calling us to a higher call. I am calling us to understand the scripture. And so he stands up and he looks at them and he says, you know what, you're right. It is what the Bible says. So here's what we should do. Um, we should stone her. Here's how we'll handle it. Um, those of you without sin, you should go first. Those of you with clean internet browsers, you should go first. Those of you with clean hearts and unlustful eyes, you should go first. Those of you with, with um, non-slanderous and non-gossip tongues, you should go first. And one by one, they start going away. I love how the older ones go away first because you know if you've lived long enough, you start to get this a little bit. Jesus probably said something like Paul said. He said, you know, you should remember when you were a mere human being, pass judgment on them, you're do, and yet you do the same thing. Don't think you're going to escape God's judgment. And so he gets back on his knees and he starts writing again. And much debate through the century has been, what was he writing? It never tells us what he was writing. He's just writing in the sand, right? But if you remember, they had, what's going on in town? There's all these people and they'd been hearing about teaching all week from these rabbis. And what have they been teaching about? Well, they've been teaching about water. And how important water was for, for God's people. And what passages would they have been teaching on? Well, it's interesting. One of the passages that was taught traditionally at the Feast of the Tabernacles is in Jeremiah. This is a passage about dust, which is what you have when you don't have, Jer when you don't have water. Jeremiah 17.3, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. One writer said, what did Jesus do? He takes one of the passages they were all familiar with, he turns it on them. He is the living water in their midst. He invites them to trust him. They don't believe in him. They try to trap him. They teach about God and water and hope and new life. But when it arrives in their midst, they hadn't expected it and they can't deal with it. They cling to the familiar. They reject the living water that's right in front of them. And what does Jesus get down? He gets down and writes their name, John. Terry. Jim. Carol, go ahead and throw it. 
Just make sure you get the plank out of your own eye first. And you probably won't when you see your name written in the dust. So something happens in that dust. Something happened where they saw for the first time, before all they saw was her sin. Something happens when he puts their name in the dust where they perceive that their righteousness is not what they thought it was. And their eyes are open to their own sin and not just hers. Do you have a stone today? Who are you ready to throw it at? Some of you have carried it for years. Maybe it requires an action on your part. Maybe it requires not just letting it go and putting it down. Maybe it requires you to call somebody. Maybe it requires you to ask somebody to forgive you. See, there's no room in here for stone throwers, guys. This isn't a court. It's a church. You put down your stone. Maybe even throwing stones at yourselves forever. Like this woman might have. I am on the list. I'm a hypocrite, I'm a phony. If my wife only knew, and maybe you're ready to chuck it at yourself, you need to put down your stone. Because the crowd, it all dissipates, they leave, and all that's left is Jesus and the woman. And think about what's going through her mind. Oh no, it's just me and the religious guy. It's just me and the priest. And what does he do? He does what he always does. He says to her, woman, where are they? Where are your condemners? Is there anyone here to condemn you? And she looks around and she says, no one, sir. And then he says to the words she never expected, and a reaction I haven't heard once this week relative to the Ashley Madison scandal, then neither do I. Wait, wait, wait. What about the Bible? The Bible said we're supposed to stone her. What about punishment? What about death? And Jesus introduces her to the greatest law, the law of love. He shows her. He does not just teach her. He shows her the gospel. Do you see it? He says, how would you like to start over? How would you like a different story, a new outcome, a better chance, a new way? How would you like to be really forgiven and set free? How would you like to be changed? And she gets it, and she understands the forgiveness because it was very real to her. She understood her sin. She understood that there was a cost to be paid for her sin. She was caught in the act. She understood her sin and the penalty that was due her. She was going to die, but Jesus stood between her and the crowd. Jesus stood between her and what she was due, and because he stopped them, she's saved. She doesn't die. And because he stopped them, they want to kill him. And because he stopped them, he will die for her, and she will live. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. For all of us stone throwers out there, this is the same offer that's made to you. It's the same offer that's made to me. In our shame and in our darkness, it's what one writer called a divine do-over. It doesn't end there, though. It just I'll, I'll leave you with this thought. Jesus leaves her with one last thought. And this gets twisted by religious folks all the time. If you're sitting out there this morning and your, your number one thought is, make sure you tell them that he said, don't sin anymore, you might have to check your heart on because if that's what you're taking away from the story, there's a spirit of judgmentalism there. The point was the repentance and forgiveness and grace comes with a cost. It's the death of the old. It's the birth of new. She's experienced the grace and the love of Christ. She looked around through her tears and her fears and her trembling. There is no way for her to go back to her old life. The new one was better. Now, do you think she sinned after this? Of course she did. She wasn't perfect. 
but she was willing to go and pay whatever the cost there would be. There would be a cost. There would be a lover to walk away from. Maybe you need to walk away from a lover this morning. There would be a husband. There would be a spouse that needed to be reconciled with. Maybe you need to reconcile with somebody this morning. There would be kids who are going to think differently about her. Maybe you need to figure out something to say to your kids. There was going to be a cost to it. But having experienced the grace of God, there was no turning back. Come on up, band. So who are you in the story? I don't know if you're on the Ashley Madison list or not, but maybe you find yourself this morning in the place of conviction and inner shame. Maybe you're, you're, one, of the, you're, you're one who's got the two-life thing going on. Listen... No one's going to throw a rock at you. I'm not going to throw a rock at you. Put down your own stone as you get ready to throw it at others. Put down your own stone as you get ready to throw it at yourself and come to the one who loves you and forgives you and offers you new life. Maybe you're carrying around a rock and you're carrying it around forever. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they saw? Do you know how they stabbed me in the back? You know how many times Glenn Campbell was married? You need to put down your stone. You need to put down your stone. And maybe together, when you go out today, some of the ushers are going to set up a couple buckets at the door. Whatever it is, think about it during our worship time here for a second. Whatever it is, whatever stone you need to drop, if it was meant to be inflicted on you or someone else, make a commitment in your soul this morning that when you go by those buckets, you're going to drop that stone and you're going to do whatever it takes to go and leave that life of sin. And you're going to do whatever it takes to make sure you're reconciled and restored in relationship to those who you want to throw it against. And maybe then we can become the kind of place where Mother Teresa would say was filled with little Jesuses who instead of throwing rocks at ourselves or others, maybe we can become the kind of people who understand how much we've been forgiven, how serious sin is in our lives, and maybe we can become the kind of people that start dropping our rocks and standing between the rock throwers and the broken and begin to offer our lives up like Jesus. Amen.